Amen, amen. Can we say amen? amen? All right, all right, all right. We're going to start off with a confessional question for you. How many of you here lie? How many of you lie? Show of hands, come on. If your hand is not up right now, how many of you lie? Keep them up. If your hand's not up right now, you're lying. People that say they don't lie, they're lying. Yep, 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 yep. And the biggest lies you tell are yourself. One of the greatest mistakes you can make in life is assuming that all the thoughts in your head are actually true. How many of you have ever heard a thought in your head and you said, this is not true? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, you lie to yourself. One of the things I've been trying to teach, we're in the fourth week of this series, it's the last week, Renee said that's enough, so we're in the fourth week. Like it or not, your brain can be a real jerk to you. Your brain gives you a lot of problems, unchecked, negative, internal messaging, otherwise known as overthinking. Some of you, think about it this way. You ever watched a hamster on a wheel just going round, 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 and the hamster gets off and it's in the same place? This is some of your brains, right? Yes, hello, someone say amen. amen. Overthinking is essentially when your brain spins on a thought or idea longer than you anticipated. And here's what we know, overthinking tends to lean towards the negative. Left to its own devices, your brain, your thoughts will gravitate toward things that you don't want to dwell on. Fear, how many of you found that the voice of fear doesn't take any work at all to come in your head? Yeah? Doubt doesn't take work. Insecurities don't take any work whatsoever. They just come right along. They just come. You don't even ask them. Insecurity just shows up. Oh, I'm just preaching to myself here. Okay. Okay. We all have broken soundtracks in our heads, okay? I remember I grew up with a dad that had an 8-track. Remember the 8-track? Does anyone here remember 8-tracks? Yeah. 8-tracks. You know you're old when you know about an 8-track, right? Our millennials are like, what's an 8-track, Siri? What is that? Yeah. And you know that a lot of us have broken soundtracks, and sometimes when I counsel people, particularly couples, I will hear the, the, the broken soundtrack will suddenly go on autoplay as the couple sits in my office and they're looking at each other and they're sitting on the opposite sides of the couch and the couch is already small, okay? And they say things like, well, he'll never change. And then he says, well, all she cares about is the kids. And then she says, maybe we're just not compatible, Pastor. It's gotten real quiet in here now. And those are sweeping, broad statements with a kernel of truth wrapped in layers of fiction. Mm -hmm. And if you unquestionably follow your negative thoughts about your spouse, even if you don't speak them out loud, you'll eventually find yourself going down a dark hole and negativity breeds negativity. You cannot have a positive life with a negative thought mind. And in a marriage, it will steal your hope. Your brain, when left unchecked, will tend to generate <laughs> broken thoughts. Fortunately, fortunately, God has equipped us so that we can actually choose, not always our first thought, but our second and third thought, right? We've been talking about this in this series. And that's why the Bible says outrageous things like, hey, when you have a thought, you can actually take it captive. You're not just a victim of your thinking. You can actually take it captive, and you can say, is this from God or not? We make it obedient to Christ. That's what it means. All right, come on. That's the message in this series. Someone get excited and say amen. amen. All right. There was a, I'm going to start with a story. This is a, uh, a little bit different take on this uh, series. We're going to go a little different direction, but I think it's still relevant. There was a young boy who was born in a small village in Wolfthropes in England in 1642. We're going way back. Okay. Not exactly a current event story. Okay. This young boy's life probably couldn't have started out any worse. His father died before he was even born. His mother, 19 years old when he's born, she is bankrupt. She is without a job, financially destitute. And to make matters worse, he's born uh, premature. Now, today, being born premature, thanks to a drug called sofractin that develops infants' lungs, is not as a big of a deal. But 380 years ago, being born premature, big deal. Everybody say big deal, big deal, yeah. And on top of that, 
she's a widow. She's 19. She's left with no way to provide for her family. When the boy was three years old, along comes the villain of the story. And of course, the villain of the story is a minister, of course. I have to share this one. All right, anyhow, there was an Anglican minister in the neighboring village of North Witham. It's a true story. And he proposed to the young mother. She's only 22. The Anglican minister was a wee bit older than her. He's 70. Everybody say slight age difference. Yes. What's 50 years among lovers, you know? She asked this young woman to marry him. She said yes. And she moves in to another village into the parsonage. There was only one condition. She couldn't bring her boy with her. Whatever. I told you he was a villain. For whatever reason, he didn't like the boy. Didn't want her to bring the boy. So she basically abandons her son to the care of her and his grandparents. She gets married to the minister. She moves into the parsonage. And she didn't even see her son for many, many years, like 10. Now, when you're three years old, you don't know everything, right? But you do know when you've been rejected at three. You know when those who should have loved you no longer love you. And this young boy knew that. How do we know that? Because we can read his memoirs today. He's written in his memoirs, and it's absolutely heartbreaking to read how this little toddler at five and six and seven and eight years old would walk over and sit on top of his village and look in the other village, and he would see where his mom lived. Okay, and she would see this other man, and she would, he would just sit there, and he would hate on what his mother and this man had done to him. He would hate his mother for giving him away and rejecting him. He would hate the minister for taking his mother away, and he hated the God who the minister represented. Now, as the years went by, that hate grew in that young boy's heart. And when he started school, he was angry. He was sullen. He was despondent. He would talk back to teachers. How many of you talk back to your teachers? Come on. Oh, we got a bunch of class nerds in here. That's wonderful. Well, I talk back, okay? Anyhow, he would not learn. He would bully the other students. He was the big problem in his school until one day. Now, everybody knew there was going to be a turning point to this story, right? Everybody knew. You're like, where's the turning point? Come on. We're going we're gonna to turning around the plane here, until one day there was a man that moved into the village, and he was, because, you know, men used to teach, men don't teach today, we should, but man, he was a teacher of the school. Now, history doesn't tell us a lot about this man, but we do know that his name was John Houston, and we do know that he was a devout Christian, and for whatever reasons, John Houston's eyes became fixed on this little boy, and even though he would have had an easier task tutoring someone else, he looked at this boy, and he made up his mind that there is beauty within this child. And he thought, somewhere, I'm just going to do whatever I can to bring out the beauty in this, in this boy. We all need people who can see the beauty in us and speak to us and bring it out. None of us get where we're at in life without people that bring out the beauty in us. Amen? Right? If you want to change the world, you need to find, find someone to help you paddle. If everybody gets a canoe in life, and we all do, you need someone, not dead weight, not weighing you down, you need someone that can help you paddle. I got enough dead weight people in my life, I don't even remember them. Are you with me? So John Houston started praying for this boy, and he started seeing in, in this boy what no one else could see. And he started helping him and loving him and giving him extra time. Not microwave time, crock pot time. He took him fishing. And, and here's what he knew. When he got to the school, he got the, the previous teacher's reports on this boy. And this is what it said. It said three main things about this boy. Lazy, will not learn, good for nothing. We know this. This is actual history. They have it. Lazy, 
will not learn good for nothing. And guess what soundtrack became the most prominent that played in that boy's head? Lazy, will not learn, and I'm a good for nothing. So guess what he was? Lazy, would not learn, and good for nothing. But John Houston would not give up on him. He kept praying and loving him and tutoring him and spending time with him, real time. And as the months turned to years, this boy all of a sudden started showing encouragement and he started showing some love and appreciation. And gradually his little dark heart started to have some light in it. And to John Houston's amazement, he realized that this kid has amazing intellectual capacity and he had great academic potential. And as the years were added to another, it became obvious to the entire school that this kid was pretty smart. And all of a sudden, this boy was not a problem anymore. And they realized that, especially in areas of math and physics, boy, he really was excelling. And when this boy became a young man, it was time for him to graduate from high school. John Houston did everything he could and said, you know what? You're going to go to Trinity College in Cambridge. And when he got there, paid for by John Houston to college, right? You ever paid for anyone's college? It's not cheap. And every single seed that God had planted inside this young heart started to grow and started to bloom. And you know what? After a few years, the university is like, this guy's pretty bright. And after a few years, he's the talk of the university. And then he's the talk of the town. And then he's the talk of the nation. Because this person's name, this boy's name, is Sir Isaac Newton. You know, one of the greatest scientists in all of history. You remember in class the guy with the, the picture of the apple falling on his head? The guy that discovered and wrote the laws for gravity? That's him. How many of you hated calculus in school? Oh, yeah, you're like, where the, he invented calculus. <laughs> you have trouble completing the first problem. He invented it all. <laughs> Who invents calculus? What? The spectral analysis, he invented that. If you've ever looked at a telescope, how many of you have looked at a telescope? He invented the telescope. He's pretty bright. But if you pay a visit to his grave in Westminster Abbey in London, written on his grave, right? You got to think about what are are they going to put on my grave? Because you'll be dead and it's up to somebody else. Unless you're a control freak like me, you've already written out what you want on your grave. (laughs) I already have. And if you don't put it, I'm haunting you, all of you. All right, this is what it says. Here lies Sir Isaac Newton, a man with intellect close to the divine, close to God. It doesn't say lazy, will not learn, and good for nothing. Intellect close to, he invented calculus. And then it went on to say on the grave, mortals rejoice that's you and me, mortals, we rejoice that such an ornamental humanity existed. He's a Christmas tree ornament. Come on. (laughs) They had a way with words back then, right? And I was thinking to myself, you have one man and two very different verdicts. One verdict said, lazy, will not learn, good for nothing. Another verdict said, intellect close to the divine. And I wonder what was the breaking point in between these two, what made one cease and disappear and another verdict come to fruition and come to light. And the answer was what took him from darkness and death to light and beauty is the answer is one man accepted his calling from God to honor everyone as a child of God, to see everyone as a child of God. Man, I want teachers that see everyone as a child of God and to see in what that person, what no one else could see. John Houston helped break that broken soundtrack in his head and give him a new soundtrack. And that's what I want to do today as well. So I've got a word from the Lord today. Some of you need to hear this. I want to help you paddle today. I want to put a new thought in your soundtrack. And I want it to play an autoplay like all your other thoughts. How far you can go in life is yet unseen. So do not let other people's limited beliefs about what is possible for your life diminish your potential. You need to get rid of your broken soundtracks. And some of you already know what I'm talking about because you're listening to it right now. So why am I sharing this story with you? Because what we need, what we need among Christians is an army of John Houston's. We need an army 
of spiritual Christians who will realize that our purpose of being here on earth is not only to fulfill the plans and callings that God's placed on our lives, absolutely, but do whatever we can to pave the way for the next generation and what God wants to do in and through them. At some point, we have to take this thing called faith and we hand it to the next generation and we say, this has served me well. This has helped me. This has made me who I am. Someone could get excited at any point and say amen. Can <laughs> I get some cues on the screen for this crowd here or something? I hope you're at home. Type in amen. Let me know you're excited or something. Scripture says in Romans 12.10, the scripture that deals with this, right? There is scripture that deals with seeing the best in others. And, and let's read this together. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor another above yourselves. I know what you're saying. Be devoted to who? I mean, let's be honest. How many of you have ever looked at somebody and said, eh, I don't know if I see much potential there, Pastor? <laughs> Especially when we look at young people. We look at young people, we go, huh, I don't know. But here's what you have to remember about young people. Young people, they're always the seed generation. They're a seed generation. And here's what I mean about that. Jesus speaks about a mustard seed in Mark chapter 4, verse 31. Jesus says, look, the kingdom, the kingdom of God, it's like a mustard seed. It's the smallest seed of all the seeds on earth, yet when it's planted, it grows and becomes like the largest of all the garden plants, with such big branches that even birds can perch in its shade. This is exactly like Sir Isaac Newton, a small, insignificant seed. When you looked at the exterior, you thought lazy, won't learn, good for nothing. Because why? Because he's broken from being rejected. What's needed for that mustard seed to go from that small size to that seemingly insignificant state to this enormous tree is it takes someone who's willing to come along and plant it, right? It's because when it planted, it grows, right? Here's what I want to tell you. Friends, seeds don't plant themselves. Hello? Seeds need someone else to plant them. And that's the calling of you and I as Christians, to help people, to plant them, to encourage them, to water them, to, hey, hey, you know what? You can be more than you are right now. You're not going to always be an acorn. You're going to be an oak tree. But what do we do instead? We're living in a culture of canceling people. Not just in media, but we want to give up and quit on people. I want to talk today about honoring people in a cancel culture. Honor in a cancel culture. How many of you heard of cancel culture? How many of you heard of that? Yeah, you should if you're like alive, okay? <laughs> because if we're going to change the world, we need more John Houstons. I want our church to be an army of John Houstons. Now, some would say we're living in the age of perpetual offense. We're quick to judge, quick to criticize quick to condemn and quick to cancel anyone that doesn't meet our criteria. One of my gifts, one of my spiritual gifts in life is I can offend people and be oblivious to it. <laughs> I am very good at this. So you have to really tell me you offended me, and then I will work hard not to do that again. But I can tell you how many times Renee goes, you know you offended by half the room when you said that. And I'm like, really? I didn't think so, but I was raised by a family of gorillas. <laughs> now, it used to be we would just cancel well-known people, like we cancel a politician who messed up, right, or an athlete, or, you know, a TV evangelist, you know, Jimmy Swagger, you know, we cancel them until they go to prison and then they come back, you know, whatever. But unfortunately now, it's like we cancel people right in our lives. And really, the basis for this message today came from Renee's school. Now, my wife's been teaching school at Morales for the last nine years. She's taught school uh, for public school for 25 years. And I just find it fascinating when Renee comes home. I love to ask Renee this question. Tell me about today. How'd your day go? How was it in the public school system? Now, I don't know about you, but... When my dad got a phone call from my teacher, 
My dad never doubted the veracity of the teacher. My dad was Pentecostal with the teacher. Oh, he did that? Uh Uh-huh, I bet he did. Yes, he did. Uh Uh-huh. Oh, I'm going to whoop him. You whoop him. Oh, you're allowed to paddle him. Go ahead, paddle him. Yes, yes, paddle him. Make sure he's not wearing double underwear. He does that at home. Paddle him. And then when he gets home, I'm going to whoop his butt. Yes, amen. My dad was Pentecostal on the phone. I would hear the phone call. What is going on? But today, Renee has a, 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 a kid in her class. And they're always named John. She's like, all day long, John, John, John. And then all night, John, John, John. That's, that's, that's what she does. That's what Renee tells me. There's always some kid named John. I'm like, Remember what John means. The name for that is God's gift. I'm just saying. That's what my name means. I've researched it. You can use this, friends. It's true. So, so look. So she says to me, I have a problem with this kid named John. And so I emailed the parents about John, what John did. He's just misbehaving, right? He's looking for attention. He's looking for love. So she emails the parents. The parent, the mom, comes back and says, well, that's just not true. Little Johnny could never have done that. She's doubting the Do you think Renee's sitting around going, who can I make up a story about today? See, in the lottery, who's going to be in trouble today? So the, the parent writes back to Renee, I'm going to cancel you. I'm going to cancel your classroom and pull him out of the classroom and put him in another classroom. Renee's response is, thank the Lord. <laughs> she wanted to be cancelled. It's like, that's not the right response, Renee. It doesn't go with the message. Do you think the problem lies with the teacher? Do you think Renee's trying to offend a parent? And so we write, we cancel people, we cancel our teachers. I don't like the way they're teaching my kids. And so you just write them out of your life. And it could be a single misstatement. It could be a misunderstanding. It could be something very intentional, something very dumb. It could be a tweet that's old, right? We dig up tweets on people, well, they said this. Or how about an email that's 11 years old, but John Gruden gets fired from the Ra- He's a coach of the Raiders. We dug up an email from 11 years ago. How many of you would like every conversation dug up from you? 11, 11 years old. Who keeps an email for 11 years? Somebody that wants you fired. That's who. And I'm not defending what he said in those emails. But the tragedy to me is it's not just with those who are well-known that's so easy to dismiss, but it can be your friends. It can be your family. I have a family I'm counseling right now that they do not want to speak to the other family member because they don't like who they voted for. Never base your happiness on who's in Washington, D.C., friends. Because if you do, you'll have four years where you're elated, and then you'll have four years where you're just miserable. Well, I don't like the way they vote. Or I had one lady say, I don't like the way, I don't like the way you were looking at me while you're preaching. <laughs> it ain't all about you. I wasn't even looking at you. I didn't even know you were here. <laughs> well, he never liked some comments on my post. And they're really, really slow to respond to my text. And I texted, and you started to respond, and I saw the bubbles, and then you ghosted me. I'm done with you. I'm going to block your number on my phone. Block it. You're blocked. We live in an age of perpetual offense, and yet we're called as Christians to live in an age of love and honor. Why? Because there's a lot of broken soundtracks out there, and a lot of people are listening to them. We have to acknowledge that, look, if you're on a search, if you're looking to be offended, you're going to find it. And we live in a a culture where we're looking to be angry, we're looking to dishonor, but yet we have this scripture and we have this calling that says you're supposed to be like John Houston. Scripture says, Romans 12, 10, and this will introduce our virtue for today. We've lost virtues in our culture. Scripture tells us we're going to honor somebody. Somebody say honor. Honor, you can type that in the chat at home. I'm going to show honor. Type that in the chat. Scripture says, 
honor one another above yourselves. So I'd ask you, how are we doing at that? How are we doing in our culture at honoring one another above ourselves? How are we doing that in our relationships? Anybody ready for God's word today? If, you, if you're ready, say, I'm ready. If you're at home, just type in, I'm ready. Okay, here we go. We got some people ready. We're going to be in Mark's gospel, chapter 6, and I'm going to give you the context of Mark, chapter 6. In Mark, chapter 6, before this, Jesus has done some pretty powerful miracles. Now, I don't know how many miracles you've done, but Jesus has done some pretty significant things. There's a woman, 12 years of bleeding. She's got a problem, spent all her money. Doctors can't fix her. Doctors say, all, we've done all we can do. She's bleeding constantly for 12 years. She's a social pariah, can't go to church, can't touch her husband, can't be around her friends. She's a social pariah. She has to shout out unclean when she walks down the street. And you thought quarantining for 10 days was bad. She's 12 years of quarantine. She touches Jesus, Jesus heals her. Says to her daughter, he calls her daughter, your faith has made you well. And then, at the same time, Jairus, his daughter, uh, just a Roman soldier, daughter, dying and she dies and everybody's laughing when Jesus shows up and Jesus shows up and says, you know, Tabitha, get up and she gets up and she's alive and I don't know about you, but if your daughter dies and Jesus raises her from the dead, that's a pretty significant miracle. And so this all happens and then it says Jesus goes into his hometown, not his birthplace, he goes to his hometown where he's raised. His hometown was Nazareth and people were looking for the Messiah and they looked right at Jesus and they looked right past him because they did not see like John Houston saw. Scripture says this, Mark chapter 6, Jesus left that part of the country and returned with his disciples to Nazareth, his hometown. The next Sabbath he began teaching in the synagogue and many who heard him were amazed. They asked, where did he get all this wisdom and the power to perform such miracles? But then they scoffed. And this is not in the Scripture, but this is my, what, my conjecture. They said, isn't this the guy we grew up with? Come on. We went to school with this guy. Isn't this a guy who majored in building tables? A carpenter? And then they said, and we know he's, insulting, he's being insulted now, they said, isn't this the son of Mary? Now, right away, you don't read that as an insult, right? But we, they would in biblical times because no man was identified by the lineage of his mother. This is like saying, isn't this the illegitimate child of Mary? That's what they were saying 30 years later. A small town still remembers it's illegitimate. They weren't buying the whole virgin birth thing, okay? Are you with me? Okay. You're the son of Mary. They should have said the son of Joseph. That would have shown respect. But disrespect, dishonor is they said, you're the son of your mom, son of Mary. And, and then they list Jesus' brothers, because Jesus had brothers and sisters. I know the Catholic Church doesn't teach us. They never talk about this verse. It's in the Bible. Jesus had brothers named James, Joseph, Judas, and Simeon. And his sisters, they didn't name them because that's the way the Bible worked, but he had sisters too, live right here among us. We know their family. They're so familiar. There can't be anything special about those who are familiar to us. And the Bible says they were deeply offended and they refused to believe in him. Then Jesus told his disciples, look what he says about honor. A prophet is honored everywhere except in his hometown and among his relatives and his own family. You ever showed back up at a high school reunion and no one wants to honor you? I have. <laughs> Come on, you're not really a pastor. Come on. What are you selling? What are you selling? Cars? Come on, you're selling cars, aren't you? I could do that, I, but I'm not. He was without honor. In his hometown, Jesus was without honor. What's the difference between showing honor and withholding honor? I want to show you a couple of Greek words in Scripture. The first word is atomos, and that word means without honor. The word atomos means to dishonor or treat someone as common, as ordinary. There's nothing special about you. There's no reason I should treasure you. I wouldn't say anything good about you. I shouldn't expect anything from you. You're, you're common. The word that's translated honor, it looks like the word time, but it's pronounced tiami, and it means to value or highly honor, really respect. It means to hold as precious, as weighty, as valuable. So what does honor do? Honor esteems, honor cherishes, honor values, honor builds up. It encourages, it believes the best about someone. It is to see people with the eyes of John Houston. 
And dishonor does just the opposite. It treats people as common. It tears down. It belittles. It criticizes. It devalues. It believes the worst. Anybody here remember dating your spouse? Does anybody ever date or we just swipe right now? I don't even know. I don't know. I'm 51. I haven't dated in a long time. But back in the day, when you wanted to honor your partner, right, you'd do things like open the door for her. You took her on a date. Remember a date? I always tell married guys, look, if you want to honor your wife, take her on dates. Continue to do all the little things you did when she fell in love with your butt. <laughs> you quit doing those things, she's going to fall out of love. Honor, honor. You give her compliments. You compliment everything. You brag on her. You post photos with them. And you put hashtag true love. <laughs> but what happens? They get married. They settle down. They have kids, they got a mortgage, they got car payments. And over time, they start to take what was extraordinary as just ordinary. And you take each other for granted. And instead of honoring her, he treats her as she's ordinary. Instead of saying, this is my girl, this is my baby doll whom I love, what's he say? He comes in the house and he's like, well, what'd you do all day? I've seen some guys show more affection to their dogs when they walk in the house than their wives. What's up? You gave your wife a what's up? And you're over here loving on your dog? And you wonder why your dog loves you more than your wife? You're honoring your dog above her. Or, he, you know, or he comes home and he burps. You want some of this? I'm a real pastor. I'm talking real here, friends. And, she, and he wonders, why is she turning away? Some of you guys are being real quiet in here right now. <laughs> if you want a special God-honoring marriage, what do you do? You honor one another above yourself. You want a common marriage? Just treat each other ordinary. Because when you do, what once was special will become ordinary. I saw this played out. Renee and I went to San Antonio. My best friend in San Antonio is a San Antonio PD. He's a detective now. And I went with him. His wife's name is Jennifer, wonderful gal, great couple. And then we went with this other couple who will remain unnamed, and I pray to God they're not going to watch this. <laughs> but we're all, so have you ever gone out like, like three couples? So there's six of us. Okay. Takes a little longer to get a table. But there we are at the wonderful Applebee's. And... Uh, I hate Applebee's, but they wanted to go to Applebee's. It's like a low-budget version of Chili's. I don't understand it, but anyway. Applebee's. All of San Antonio, we got to go to Applebee's, really. SPID for Applebee's. Anyhow, so we're, I don't know if you've ever had this happen where the couple, everyone's interacting, everything's going great, and then one of the couples starts to have a fight in the middle of the date. That's really awkward. So she starts, this woman starts berating her husband. She's just tearing him a new one. Yeah, well, you never do this because we were talking about like stuff that we do at home. Well, you never do that. You don't even mow the lawn. You don't even do this. And she just is ripping him. And I was about to say something. Can you imagine me about to interject? <laughs> and Renee is right by me and she gives me what I call the holy kick. Have you ever had the holy kick? Under the table, I mean, she's kicking the crap out of my shins, like, wow, which means shut up, shut up, shut up. So I shut up. I don't say anything. And, you know, baby doll's a quiet one. She just said, let it play out, right, let it play out. So this other woman, she's just jumping on her husband. And then this Jennifer says, hey, you know, you need to stop, you know, we're, we're out, we're having fun. Quit tearing in your husband. Maybe you don't need to honor him and respect him a little bit more. And, and, you know, maybe he'll become that. And, and then the, the, <laughs> the nagging wife, <laughs> I'll call her that, she bowed up. And she said, well, if my husband was one-tenth of the man of your husband or one-tenth of Mr. Holy Boy over here. <laughs> and now I'm like, now I'm in it. I should have said something. <laughs> I should. 
and, and I'm like, why am I getting dragged into this? And that woman didn't give an inch, and she said these words, maybe my husband is the man he is because I've been honoring him since the day we met him. And I was struck by that. I was like, wow. See, here's the problem. We often tend to think that once you act honorable, then I'll show you honor. Once you live in such a way that you deserve honor, then at that moment, I'm going to go ahead and describe honor to you. No, 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 no. That's not the way it works. See the value in the other. We have to have eyes like John Houston. Everyone's a seed. Our job is to plant them, encourage them. Our job is to see everyone as a child of God. This is why we as a church say things like, we welcome everyone who welcomes everyone. Why? Because everyone's a child of God. Even if they don't look like you, think like you, vote like you. Oh, man. I don't know, pastor. You really mean that? Yes. Let me ask it this way. Is the soundtrack you're playing about people in your head one that you want them to hear? Is it one you want to put on their tombstone? There's a big difference between respect and honor. What do we know? Respect is earned, but honor is given. Honor is a posture of the heart. That's why Paul says honor each other. Respect, nah, that's earned. It is saying, you know what, God, because of who you are and because of your creation, even if they're not acting in an honorable way, I choose to honor this person because one of the ways that I honor God is I honor another. Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait. One of the ways I love God, the best way, the most way I can love God is by loving another. Oh, because the vertical and the horizontal always go together. And here's what's crazy. When you start to ascribe honor to someone and you start to treat them as special and weighty and precious and you start to build them up and you believe the best about them and encourage them, guess what they become? They become honorable. If, on the other hand, when you assume the worst and you tear them down and you tell them over and over and again what they are not and you belittle them and you criticize them and you take them out at the knees, it's amazing sometimes how they will continue to act dishonorably. Because honor builds up and dishonor tears down. So what are we going to do? The first one, if you're taking notes, we can take notes. We're going to honor God. We're going to honor our creator, our redeemer, our sustainer, our El Shaddai. The God who's more than enough, our provider, the holy one. The one who spoke and created all that is. The one who says in Ephesians 1.4 that before God said, let there be light, he thought of you. He thought of everyone you see. They are a child of God. They're here for reasons. So how do we honor God? Scripture gives us a lot of ways. One way we honor God is we honor him with what he gives to us. Now, I never preach on this, and I'm not going to dwell on it, but Scripture says we should honor him with our first fruits. That means everything we have comes from God, and that means everything we are comes from God. And so when he gives us an increase, we honor him. That means we're called biblically to tithe 10% to the church. Now, I know, I know, there's three conversions, mine, the heart, and the wallet, and the wallet's the last one to go. <laughs> Here's what I know about our church. You're not going to like this part. You're going to want to delete this part. You want to mute it at home. Our church has a lot of tippers. We do not have a lot of tithers. I do not want to worry about it every year, like, are we going to have enough funds to do our ministry? I shouldn't have to. We can do better. You can do better. The average person in the, in the United States that comes to church, the average person gives less than $12 a week to, the, to, to support ministry. Let me tell you something. If you're giving more to Starbucks than to God, there's a problem. You can do better. Don't be average. Come on, we can do better. Okay, I'll move on. I know you're uncomfortable. <laughs> so why does honor matter much? It's not just right before God, but to be dishonorable actually hurts you. Anytime you're dishonoring, it actually hurts you. Scripture teaches us in Mark 6, 4, and 5, back to our text. Jesus said, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown among his relatives in his own home. Now watch this, verse 5. It's crazy. Jesus could not do any miracles except lay his hand on a few sick people and heal them. Now, here's what's crazy. It doesn't say he would not, but Scripture says Jesus could not. He could not do any healings. What? 
Now, he just raised a girl to li- a dead girl to life. He just healed a woman of bleeding of 12 years. But all of a sudden, when he's in his hometown where people are not honoring him, he cannot do a miracle. Why? Because in this context, when there's a lack of faith and lack of honor, he could not do any big miracles. I don't fully understand this. I'm not going to pretend like I do, but what I do know that a lack of honor and a lack of faith limited what Jesus could have done otherwise. Wow. So here's what I wonder. I wonder, like, what sort of miracles God wanted to do for you, what blessings God wanted to give you, what prayers God wanted to answer for you, but he didn't because you lacked honor and faith. Honor one another above yourselves. How are we doing in that in our cancel culture? Will you write your friend off Facebook? I'm going to... I'm going to write you off. Honor one another above yourselves. I like the way another translation says, to outdo one another in showing honor. So when you go out to eat, do you always reach for the bill and say, I will do this, I'll honor you, and I'll reach for the bill? Or are you like one of my friends who all of a sudden, it's magical every time he has a bladder problem as the bill is coming back? (laughs) I'll be right back out of the bathroom. Here comes the waitress, boom. It's like, did you coordinate this? Every time. You want a marriage that's blessed instead of tearing each other down? What if you tried to outlove one another? What if you said, hey, honey, let's try to out-encourage each other? What if you tried to out-give each other? What if you tried to out-cherish and out-esteem one another? If you try that, just try it for a week. Just say, okay, honey, I'm going to try to out-encourage you this week. I'm going to try to out-bless you this week. Oh, my gosh. Can you imagine what would happen in your marriage? Instead of, hey, what'd you do all day? Or petting the dog. So above all, I honor a name that's, above all names, I honor the name of Jesus, my Redeemer, my King, my Savior, my Lord, my Righteous, the one who's forgiven me, the one who's healed me, the one who brought me redemption, the one who reached down and pulled me out when I was so low and didn't deserve it. I didn't deserve any honor, but he said, you know what? You're worth it. He said, you know what? I, I see you. And you're worth it. And the one whose name above every other name, his name is Jesus. And Scripture says, you know, sometimes people honor me. God says people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. We live in a culture that may give God lip service, treating God as familiar and common and ordinary. But he's not. God is not the big guy in the sky. He's not your homeboy. Jesus is not your homeboy. He's not the six-pound, eight-ounce baby Jesus, okay? He's the Prince of Peace. He's the Lamb of God. He's the Alpha and Omega, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. That's our Jesus, and we honor him with all of our hearts. And when we honor God, that means we honor people. And the main way that we honor God is by honoring others above ourselves. And why do we do that, even when they're different and when they're wrong? Because they are still his, right? They're wrong, Pastor, but we still have to honor them because they need the same grace that you needed We honor them just because his name is on them, because everyone you see is a child of God. Everyone you see has God's handiwork on it, God's fingerprints. I don't care what their affiliation is. I don't care what their orientation is. I don't care who they are. They are a child of God. That's why we have funerals. Can you imagine if we said, well, they were just too ordinary to have a funeral for? Too common. You're not common. You're not ordinary. Why? Because God's name is upon you. It's because of Jesus. It's because of his name. Let me close with this story. I want to close with this story. And I, look, I know it's 1201, okay? I'm aware. <laughs> Some of you are excited that I'm aware. Okay, I get it. I had a lady walk out of the 9 o'clock. It was 10.06. She goes this. Oh. <gasps> I honored her. I said, I, I know it ran a little long. I hope it was worth it to honor God for what's an extra six minutes today. <laughs> I had to give God an extra six minutes. <sighs> so give me an extra six minutes. All right. Everybody know what this is? Someone said, uh-oh, like I'm going to start beating people here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we're going to get real Pentecostal here. Yeah. <laughs> what do you guys? What? Come on. All right. So this is a what, church? This is a baseball bat. Yes, and 
the king of the baseball bat is Babe Ruth, considered one of the all-time greatest hitters who ever lived, the Bambino, right? And here's what he did. He autographed tons and tons of baseballs, but only seven of these, seven home run bats. And I'm going to show you something that might be hard for you to believe, but this right here is actually one of those seven bats. Not really. I'm just teasing. That's not really. Oh, well, cool. I mean, <laughs> think I have one. I got this on Amazon for $19.99 with free delivery. Come on, friends. <laughs> All right. So there were seven bats that he, seven bats, only seven that he signed. And one of them vanished, right? So let me take you back a little. Babe Ruth was born in 1895 in Pigtown, in, in Pig a poor little town in Baltimore, Maryland. His father ran a bar, okay? And his father was always at the bar. Uh, they lived in a small apartment upstairs the, from the bar. Uh, neither his father was too busy for Babe Ruth, and his mother was very sick most of the time, uh, laid in bed a lot of time, was really bedridden. And so Babe Ruth didn't have any parental, you know, influence, so he became, you know, Sir Isaac Newton as a kid. Mischievous, a bully in school, skipped school, got arrested, stole from merchants. This kid was up to no good. It was so bad that the authorities, when they arrested him, they took him away from his parents. This is an amazing story. And they put him in uh, St. Mary's Industrial School for Boys, a Catholic reformatory school, and it was also an orphanage. And Babe Ruth had a broken soundtrack, and it was lazy, will not learn, mischievous, and always in trouble. But they had this thing at the school called P.E., and they played this game called baseball. And there was a father there named Father Matthias, and he said, you know what? I believe in this kid. I believe in this kid named Babe Ruth, and I'm going to nurture and love him and encourage him. And he was like John Houston to him, and he became the one who introduced baseball to Babe Ruth. And he noticed, here's what he noticed, that he was a great pitcher. He was actually a great pitcher, Babe Ruth. And what they discovered, there was a big league scout that came when Babe Ruth was 18 at the orphanage, and he said, you know what, you're a great pitcher. We'd like you to pitch for us. And he signed with the Boston Red Sox, big league contract, and he pitched from 1914 to 1919. And although he was a great pitcher, he became an even better hitter. That's right. And after being traded to the New York Yankees in 1919, he became the best home hit, run hitter in baseball. Before that first game was played in Yankee Stadium on April 18th in 1923, Ruth told reporters, I'd give a year of my life to hit the first home run in that stadium. A year of your life. Wow. It happened in the third inning against Boston. He hit a three-run homer that christened the new stadium. And, of course, the stadium became the one that it was, it was called, right, the house that Ruth built, right? Are you with me? Okay. So... The home run was the climax of a spectacular grand opening, set the stage for the Yankees. They won 27 World Series championships. A few weeks later, Ruth had been honored, right, when he didn't deserve honor, because he had been believed in, when he didn't have anything to be believed in, when he didn't do anything worthy of being believed in, he had a heart for children's causes and young ball players. So he took that baseball bat that he hit the first home run with, and he donated it to the Los Angeles Evening Herald, and he signed it to the boy home run king of Los Angeles, Babe Ruth, May 7th, 1923. Now that bat was actually awarded to a young Victor Arsati, who was a high school senior who led the city in home runs, and Arsati treasured the bat for more than 60 years. If Babe Ruth signs a baseball bat, you think you treasure it? Yeah. So he had it for 60 years. Now Arsati, in 1988, got to the end of his life, and he was sick. He had no family, he had no heirs, he had no one that really loved him except for a nurse, a nurse who took care of him all the time and cared for him and honored him and went the extra mile and, and took care of him even when she wasn't getting paid. And her name was Marcy Tejada. And Marcy Tejada loved him until his last dying breath. And so the, one of the last acts that Victor did was he said, hey, I've got this bat, you can have it. So Marcy Tejada, being a nurse, not knowing much about baseball, thought, eh, I don't know if this is worth anything. It's got this guy's name, Babe Ruth, on it. I don't know. So she goes home, and she sticks it under her bed for 18 years. 18 years it's under her bed. Then she retires from nursing, and she says, huh, I wonder if that old bat is worth anything. So she takes it out. She goes down to the pawn shop, and the guy's like, yeah, I think it's worth a little bit. And so then she takes it to New York City, to Sotheby's auction, and 300 people were there, and they were all interested 
in that Babe Ruth bat that she had at Christian New York Stadium, right, in 1923. The excitement in the room was palpable, okay? And bidding began for her for the bat. The bat, the bidding began at 400000 And then it went all the way up to 1.26. It sold for $1.26 million, the most money ever paid for a baseball bat. Wow. Now, here's what's great about the story, right? She didn't just say, oh, I'm going to keep all that money. She used a portion of that money, a third of it, to open up a restaurant. She always wanted to do that. Then she took three-fourths of the money, and she gave it away to, guess what, Babe Ruth's Foundation for Children. And the media said, why would you do that? Why would you give all that money away? And this is what she said, and here's the point of the sermon, so pay attention. <laughs> the bat was only valuable because Babe Ruth's name was on it. Since he made it valuable, the only reasonable thing I could do was something that would, oh, here's this word, honor his life. Oh, my gosh. What is it makes you valuable? What is it makes you valuable? It's the name above every other name. And his name is on you, and that name is Jesus. Jesus looked at the cross and looked at you and said, you're worth it. And your name has Jesus all over it. His name is Jesus. And because his name is upon you, you're not common. You're not ordinary. And because of who he is and because of what he's done, the only reasonable response is to show him honor with my whole life. And if you're a Christian, what makes you valuable is Jesus. And your only reasonable response is to show him honor. And how do we do that? We honor one another above ourselves. Oh, my gosh. And so when you dishonor someone else, you're dishonoring God. So don't walk out of here and go, it's 12.09. <laughs> I don't care. I wrote this all week. I'm going to preach it. Come on. I'm not looking for a hand here. I want you to know, like, this bat is worth $19.99. Well, more if you'll give it for me. I don't know. You know anyone want to buy it? But it's got no signature on it. But Babe Ruth, the Babe Ruth signature is on this. It's worth $1.26 million. You have Jesus' signature on you, on your soul. Some people can see it. Other people can't. Your job is to let other people know, hey, you know what? You're divine. You're a child of God. Honor one another above yourselves. Let's pray. God of grace, we give thanks that Jesus came and with his very life, he said, I want to remove the broken soundtracks in our heads, the lies that we tell ourselves that we're lazy, we're no good, we'll never amount to anything. Father, let us hear your soundtrack today that says, you're my child, I love you, I made you, I created you for significance. And Lord, if Sir Isaac Newton heard it, if Babe Ruth heard it, let us hear it as well, that we are your children. We are divine. Your name is on our soul, the name of Jesus, and that's what makes us valuable. Lord, help us to treasure that, hold on to that, and know that the way we can honor you is by living our life for the one who gave up his life for us. Let's not waste it. Let's honor it. Let's do it in the name of Jesus. And we pray the prayer he taught us as we say now together, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts. We forgive our debtors. And lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. Rise his kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. All right, let's stand up and give God a few more minutes and praise his name.